0: This is the Clinical Takeaway podcast from HealthEd, where we interview leading medical experts on important topics that can positively change the way you practise. Here's your host, GP and medical educator, Dr. David Lim.
1: Health Ed's face-to-face seminars are starting up again in 2022, and we hope that you will be able to join us for a day of high quality learning with a lineup of great speakers and important topics in women's and children's health. I'll be chairing a number of these events and I look forward to seeing you there. Register at healthad.com.au. Before we start, I'd like to encourage you to register for tonight's webcast where you can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that Health Ed has put together for you. Register now at healthed.com.au. Dr Florence Chang's approach to Huntington's disease is very helpful to GPs who need a refresher. And it is very important and practical for those GPs who have not yet seen a patient with Huntington's disease. Dr. Chang, tell us about yourself.
0: Uh, thank you, Dr. David Ling, for the kind introduction. So uh, I'm a neurologist currently working at Westme Hospital, um, part of the Huntington disease unit run by Professor Clement Loy. And we look after about 300 um, Huntington disease patients between us and another neurologist, Dr. Samuel Kim, and also our Huntington disease outreach team which consists of physiotherapists, occupational therapists, speech pathologists, dietitian, nurses, and social workers, all whom have uh, great experience uh, in Huntington's disease, uh, because the unit was set up back in the 1990s by uh, Dr. Elizabeth McCusker, uh, initially at Lickham Hospital, that they have relocated to Westmead. And also there is um, a neuropsychological beds and psychiatric unit in St. Joseph Hospital, Auburn, uh, where my two other neurology colleagues also work at. Uh, So Mm -hmm. that's my role currently in Huntington's disease. And we also do clinical trials at Westmead Hospital. um, And we have two running at the moment and uh, three that's upcoming as well.
1: That's a really lovely introduction, Florence. uh, But I haven't really come across, no, I have come across one patient in my life as a GP with Huntington's disease, and that's very early on. So I've been there 30 years. Tell us about the incidence of Australia. How likely is a GP to see someone and who are at high risk of developing it?
0: As far as I know, the incidence is one in 10,000 to one in 30,000 so for GPs, they'll probably come across one or two patients in their lifetime. It is considered a rare disease and the disease not only impacts the individual, but also its immediate family members uh, because they're either carers for the patient uh, or they might be at risk of also inheriting the illness. Uh, so, When you see like a patient um, who might be at risk of inheriting Huntington's disease, uh, it's important to assess for issues such as anxiety, depression and irritability initially, even though they don't have any um, involuntary movements that is characterized by the onset of Huntington's disease. uh, So that all these depression, anxiety, irritability is easily treatable uh, and also has a significant uh, impact on their working life and their mental health. And uh, it's uh, great to treat these people. You get a lot of uh, satisfaction for improvement in their mental health and work life.
1: Did I just hear you say that the very early if you like, presentation of Huntington's disease is actually um, psychological uh, and and that um, they can present with quite um, nonspecific symptoms of uh, motor uh, disease. And you and I know now in the post-COVID and peri-COVID times, uh, anxiety and depression and irritability is actually very common.
0: Yes, that's right. So um, we looked at the large database of 10,000 patients that's involved in our um, observational Huntington disease study. Um, In collaboration with overseas centers as well, and we found that uh, irritability, anxiety, and depression can predate the onset of involuntary movement by at least two to three years wow. and at the Melbourne Huntington research group they've also found that anxiety depression also correlates with work performance for people who's at risk of developing Huntington's disease and so potentially um, early treatment of anxiety depression and irritability can um, improve someone's work performance and also, help um, maintain good family support and relationships, because often irritability and sometimes depression uh, can break up relationships and also uh, relationships amongst workplaces too. Mm-hmm.
1: I guess we do, SGPs, just treat the depression, anxiety and irrit- irritability mm-hmm. as we normally do, because I don't think it's easy to split out who has a true psychological or psychiatric issues versus Huntington's disease. Is that right?
0: Yes, that's exactly right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's why the onset of Huntington's disease is more defined by the onset of um, more than normal involuntary movement in a person. Uh, and not by the onset of depression and anxiety. As you know, depression and anxiety is very common in the normal population. Um, So that's why we define onset of Huntington's disease as the onset of more than normal involuntary movements.
1: Well, just to illustrate the case, Florence, I'm going to bring uh, for discussion a 34-year-old woman who presents to uh, her GP with Uh, involuntary movement of her hands that she's noticed in the last three to four months Mm -hmm. so when does um, an involuntary movement become something significant
0: yes that's a very good question Um, so with the study of normal people some normal people do have a little bit of fidgety movements Uh, so That's where movement disorder neurologists come in. So early referral to uh, a movement disorder neurologist will be able to help you differentiate uh, whether that's normal involuntary movements or sort of more than normal. And knowing patient's family history, finding out whether patient's immediate family members, relatives uh, have any previous history of any um, dementia, uh, involuntary movement uh, and also irritability or even um, drug or alcohol dependence uh, can sort of give you a clue as to whether there's any family history or Huntington's disease. Uh, sometimes that might be difficult if the patient does not know their family members say if they're adopted, uh, but generally what happens is In the neurology clinic, um, in a movement neurologist clinic, we assess them, take a history, family history. Um, We also look for other differential diagnoses, uh, such as any signs of lupus. Mm -hmm. Uh, We do a short cognitive assessment, um, usually a montreal cognitive assessment, because that's more useful to pick up any frontal disexecutive. Um, function Mm -hmm. people with Huntington disease tend to get rather than any short-term memory um, difficulties which they don't tend to get.
1: How do those cognitive issues present themselves to the patient? What would they bring up with their GP in discussion?
0: Yes. So often early cognitive changes involve difficulties with multitasking. Mm -hmm. So initially that can show up as patient uh, complaining that they might have poor work performance at work Mm -hmm. uh, or if um, they um, are at risk of losing their job or they already mm-hmm. lost their job um, mm-hmm. and is looking for um, either disability support pension um, or to mm-hmm. see whether they could look into a simpler, easier job for them to do. The other thing that can manifest is obviously we mentioned before irritability uh, and that can impact on their work mm-hmm. relationship as well. There's also another factor involved with Huntington. Sometimes it affects their ability to perceive themselves. Uh, so they actually get uh, uh, organic unawareness that uh, all these changes are happening to them. And sometimes they also are not aware of their own movements. So that sort of adds an extra layer of challenge in terms of medication compliance and also compliance with any driving restrictions and so forth.
1: Am I hearing you right, Florence, is that there may be two types of presentations. Uh, one is that people who are aware of the symptoms and come in with early involuntary movements and others who are just not aware of it and are probably dragged in by somebody else
0: yes that's right yeah um so you could get um a patient relative or carer bringing the patient in and that's the case it's often useful to interview the patient and the carer separately as if the Carers worry, talking in front of the patient about their irritability mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. the things they have uh, can't do or have lost ability to do, that could upset the patient. Mm-hmm. So actually get more information from the carer by interviewing them separately in a different room. takes mm. up extra time, but you get so much invaluable information mm. about what's really going on.
1: I think this is actually a very important practical point in the sense that as a GP now, I can understand that the patient really has no idea that they have a problem, and that to discuss them in front of somebody else is just probably too confronting. Mm. And thank you for that tip. Now, I just want to go back to fidgeting movements. I'm talking about how to differentiate between, say, a twitch or a fasciculation versus something that says, I think I should refer for um, an opinion from a neurologist.
0: So the type of um, fidgety movement that look like involuntary career movement is something that's more random and moves and um, so moves the joint. Uh, so if you have so random dance-like movements of the feet, when you get the patient to count backwards from 100, and the movements worsen when they count backwards, that's what we sort of think it's more likely an involuntary movement rather than just normal fidgetiness. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fasciculation um, is only, you see, a twitch within the muscle that doesn't move a joint. Uh, so that's completely different. Mm-hmm. Think about more a lower motor neuron, um, like neuronal um, abnormality or peripheral nerve problem then.
1: So I have two questions here before we move it further. You, you tried to tell me also, uh, Florence, that if you had the patient perform some mental task, uh, it seems to disinhibit the movements, which shows that they are probably trying to voluntarily inhibit movements. Yes. And the second is that do they disguise their movements by pretending that they are somehow purposeful?
0: Yes, yes. So you hit um, both of the points. <laughs> um with Korea, it is partially suppressible. Um so often uh Huntington clinic um we see the patient with sort of moderate amplitude dance-like movement, mm-hmm. but we get them to concentrate on the task such as um, doing a drawing all their movement stuff. <laughs> So uh, that's very interesting. Whereas if we get them to do a mental arithmetic or counting backwards, we can actually disinhibit them and bring out some of the involuntary movements. Um, So when they actually need to focus their hand and um, body posture to do a um, manual task, the actual other movements can be inhibited. But when we do a mental arithmetic without any focusing the hand or leg on a manual task, um, then uh, the movements tend to come out. So that could explain why um, in early Huntington disease, even though some people can have movements, but they can completely suppress them enough to do some driving uh, short distances, for example.
1: SGPs, we do worry about people driving when they shouldn't and probably doing work in dangerous environments when they shouldn't. So how do we know uh, when to intervene?
0: So a good screening question I do is um, I ask um, the, both the patient and their carer separately about whether they allow the patient to drive their grandchildren in a car, for example. Uh-huh so if they don't allow that then I could refer them to the nearest occupational therapist for driving assessment to be mm-hmm. fair um, and sort of tell them about the implication of passing a test with the driving assessor is that you'll be covered by insurance if you have a car crash for the next six to twelve months but if they fail the test then We can still support them by giving them community transport options and also it's like taxi subsidy Mm -hmm. vouchers, for example.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay, so I have noticed that the uh, patient in front of me does have involuntary movements that does in fact go across joints. It's random, uh, somewhat, if you like, you know, looks like Corey to me. I refer the patient to you, and you make a firm diagnosis, and you might tell us how you do that. And the patient returns back to the GPs. Now, Florence, I think you need to help us now as GPs understand exactly what our role is with that patient now returning with a firm diagnosis.
0: I'll talk about initially how the diagnosis is arrived and then talk about what's the GP's role after they return to clinic. Uh, So initially um, the diagnosis can be made if there is a positive family history of Huntington's disease. We can talk about to the patient if they want genetic testing to confirm the diagnosis. It's not mandatory to have genetic testing to confirm the diagnosis. Once they have symptoms, um, neurologists can make the diagnosis based on positive family history and a um, confirmatory neurological examination of the involuntary movements and eye movements as well if they want to go through genetic testing usually we make sure they're in the, got enough psychological social support um, because there's literature publication saying that around the time and after re- they receive the genetic test result there is slightly higher risk of self-harm and suicide uh, so We initially make sure they have enough psychological support and social support to withstand that. Um, Usually it takes about three months for the genetic test results to come back. Then we give the patient their results in person in the clinic. So once they return to the GP, you can imagine they probably need a lot of psychological and social support uh, with the new diagnosis they have to face. Um, in addition, um, they probably also faced with um, the burden of needing to tell their immediate family that they might be also at risk of Huntington's disease, especially their children and also their siblings if they're the very, very first person to be diagnosed with it. So you can imagine the kind of psychological burden they might go through. Um, so often GP would useful for them to screen for again, depression, anxiety, think about psychological counselling and setting up mental health plans. And if people cannot access NDIS, for example, set up a chronic disease management plan that allows them to access um, Medicare supported allied health visits with physios, occupational therapists, if they're starting to have falls, and speech pathologists and dieticians if they start to have coughing or choking issues. And so a good report with a GP also helps a lot in dealing with non-Huntington disease issues that come up in people whose age between 30 to 50, like all the other vascular risk factors that can impact on how the brain functions, such as diabetes, high blood pressure, and high cholesterol. Uh, So uh, all of that, um, I see the GP has a great role in supporting somebody with Huntington's disease and also their immediate families.
1: I can imagine the patient saying, Doctor, how am I going to bring this up with my children? I mean, um, it's so confronting. So my question is, what resources and information sheets can they have and are they people who can help them speak to family members?
0: Yes, that's a very good question. So the Huntington Disease, New South Wales ACT Association, um, they offer support um, for people who's also newly diagnosed with Huntington disease and their families. Uh, so their website have a lot of resources. Uh, about how to access things like NDIS, how to access the Huntington Youth Worker who can provide counselling and support for children or young adults whose family member have Huntington's disease. Um, there is also a HDYO, so HDYO website that's run by the US Huntington Society uh, and they have a web page targeted at different age groups or children from young children to teenagers to young adults uh, and it just talks about um, and gives uh, good information in language that children and teenagers can understand Mm -hmm. uh, about what's Huntington's disease and um, what you might see in your family member and how to get help and support for yourself and Mm -hmm. uh, the family if that happens to you. Uh, So the other support groups locally in Australia would be the Huntington Disease Clinic itself at Westmead and the Huntington Outreach Service here at Westmead. Um, There is also a similar service in Newcastle as well, in New South Wales, Uh, and the Huntington New South Wales Association also runs a lot of support groups for the carers and families with Huntington's disease. And you can find out all their phone numbers and contact details on the Huntington New South Wales Association website.
1: I'm going to talk to you about treatment now. Firstly, uh, from the specialist's point of view, you've mentioned that as GPs, we really need to keep uh, our watch on all sorts of cardiovascular risk factors and keep them under control. Uh, Are there others? And then I would like to ask you about things like art therapy and dance, because you mentioned to me earlier that, when the patient's asked to draw something, they can actually completely suppress their movements. So are these sorts of things useful? Uh, but firstly, uh, what, what, how do you treat them as a specialist?
0: With the patients that come in, listen to what bothers them the most and what motivates them to uh, try medication to change some of the symptoms. So Um, Usually I would initially treat the irritability um, because without treatment or irritability, it's hard for the patient to take on um, new therapy or suggestions because they're irritable and they tend to disagree. So usually we treat irritability with medication like the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, citalopran, sertraline has good evidence against them. Uh, Also, other medications such as Valproate, if the SSRIs don't tend to work, Um, and also uh, medications such as Propranolol can be useful. The uh, other medication that can be useful for both irritability and involuntary movement are the atypical antipsychotics uh, such as Olanzapine, Risperidone, uh, and even haloperidol sometimes we also use cotyping as well uh, so there are symptomatic treatment for Huntington's disease and the it- treatment that we can give is for irritability, involuntary movements. But the allied health also plays a very important role uh, in force prevention when they start to get um, to trouble with walking and balance difficulties. Uh, the speech pathologist and dietitian can recommend dietary changes to diet consistency to prevent um, choking or coughing on food and um, ending up being aspiration pneumonia. And the dietician can recommend um, uh, high protein dietary supplements. If the patient also is affected by weight loss, Mm -hmm. which can come uh, up because of the constant involuntary movements. Mm -hmm. And also the Huntington disease damages the hypothalamus and increases the catabolism of the body. And so other um, addressing of the risk factors mm-hmm. uh, for vascular disease can also uh, slow the progression of Huntington's disease. So that's where the GP is very important in addressing high blood pressure, high cholesterol, yeah. making sure that diabetes is picked up and treated. Uh, so yeah, that's what we usually do in the neuro- neurology Huntington clinic.
1: What if a patient uh, basically is, say, using insulin and has has hypose, or also has severe sleep apnea? How do these uh, impact on Huntington's? Both hypoglycemia and sleep apnea,
0: as you know, hypoglycemia and sleep apnea, um, they both they deprive. Glucose and oxygen to the brain, respectively. So, there is potential further damage and insult to the brain. Uh, so, prevention of hypoglycemia and screening and treatment of sleep apnea is very important in um, preventing the sort of faster progression of um, neuronal of cognitive loss as a result. And it applies for everyone, not just Huntington's disease.
1: That's so true, Florence. Now tell me about the true psychiatric uh, presentations. How um, severe can they get and what forms do they present with?
0: Usually it's with irritability, depression, and wanting to harm themselves. Um, So if they have thoughts of that and plans of doing that. Usually we had to do a schedule, refer them to the nearest emergency department for acute mental health assessment. Um, so that's when it becomes a psychiatric emergency.
1: But We don't have full-blown acute psychosis. Um-
0: it's pretty rare. It only happens in 10% of people with Huntington's disease. Okay. Again, that happens um, now. Scheduling and referring to acute mental health assessments in nearest emergency departments is useful.
1: We're going to talk about caring for the family now and um, uh, how to really help them in the longer term without burning out or. Um, turning against the patient uh, and the role of the GP in this?
0: Uh, So the carers, like with the GP, they could, the, the carers know there's a lot of support out there for them. There's a carer support group from the Huntington New South Wales Association so that they know they're not alone. Also, they can swap ideas with other carers. Uh, and also just vent their frustration about caring uh, for someone with the disease with someone else that understands. Uh, so having that knowledge and knowing where to look for the resources is useful, and that's where the GP can provide uh, a lot of support. Uh, in addition, on the Huntington Disease Association resp- um, website, it talks about... Um, uh, so, the guides and tips for carers on how to m- manage Huntington's disease. Also, the Huntington outreach service we run occasionally every six to 12 months, we run a carer education seminar. And so, that's where the carers can be educated on um, how to deal with behaviour changes um, uh, associated with Huntington's disease. And on the New South Wales Huntington uh, Association website. Uh, There's also tips on how to talk to NDIS on how to get respite um, and help uh, for the patient and their carers. So respite is very important too. Mm -hmm.
1: I can imagine that some patients with, um, if you like, both irritability and anxiety Mm -hmm. may self-medicate with alcohol. Mm-hmm. and some GPs seeing how anxious they are mm-hmm. and also thinking that benzodiazepines can relax muscles uh, that are in spasm. Tell us about the dangers and role of both alcohol and benzodiazepines.
0: Yeah, so we've seen people who um, abuse alcohol, benzodiazepine, um, it can make them more disinhibited and more impulsive. Uh, and at more risk of self-harm and pretty severe self-harm as well because um, they don't tend to get the, the depression preceding the self-harm thoughts leading to self-harm with alcohol, benzodiazepines, do it impulsively without the chance of talking to a medical profession to get help in between. So we advise against um, like alcohol abuse, taking benzodiazepines. Um, if you come across a patient like that, it's um, better to build rapport with them um, and then offer them uh, the drug and alcohol services to try and uh, get them off those medication and be put on a medication that has less harm.
1: Um, I did bring up the role of um, exercise, art therapy and dance therapy. Is there any uh, benefit in these sorts of things?
0: Yeah, so um, we know with exercising early stage of Huntington's disease, it builds up the muscle bulk so it can help them with um, balance and preventing falls. And um, it's better to do it with the physiotherapist um, who's more into uh, exercises that can improve balance and retrain the brain circuit to prevent falls rather than exercise physiologists. Uh, and art and dance therapy is probably more suitable for people who like, are in the sort of moderate stage of the disease. Um, the art therapy, more specifically, because they could be able to sit down and express themselves through art. And the Huntington Disease New South Wales Association, um, probably with the COVID pandemic easing off, or probably start to run it once again. There isn't so much dance therapy for Huntington's disease. As you imagine, dancing needs also a lot of coordination. Mm. It might be difficult for them to um, keep up with the rhythm of the music because of attention issues and force risks as well. So that's more for Parkinson's disease.
1: Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Florence, so I have a patient, and over the years we develop A rapport we support them and the patients through. Tell me what are some of the, if you like, um, red flags that can come at different times of the natural progression of the disease? Uh, What are they so that I can be aware of them?
0: Every time I see the patient, I would screen for things like falls, or choking when eating, swallowing, and especially any thoughts of self-harm. So those are the three important mm-hmm. things to watch out for mm-hmm. um, because they uh, can be treated and turn the patient around from heading into like a dangerous territory. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Imagine choking can cause pneumonia, falls can cause subdural hematoma, fractures, and self-harm can cause death. Mm -hmm. Those are the three things to screen for in every interview Mm Huntington's disease patients.
1: Dr. Chang, you mentioned that alcohol and benzodiazepines are two things for the patients to avoid. Are there other types of medications that GPs ought to probably not prescribe to patients with Huntington's?
0: If a patient with Huntington, if you find they're smoking, it will be good to try and persuade them to Mm -hmm. reduce or Mm -hmm. stop smoking because that's being associated with earlier Huntington disease onset and progression, and similarly with any illicit drugs Mm -hmm. um, that can also hasten the progression of Huntington's disease. Mm -hmm. In terms of medication not to prescribe, I think any anticholinergic probably... Mm -hmm would be something to try and avoid, because as you know, it um, can worsen cognition and um, dementia.
1: Can you give us some common examples of anticholinergics we should avoid?
0: So, for example, medications like for bladder spasm. Yeah, and so we tend to avoid I amitriptyline mean, mm-hmm. or triptyline when treating depression and anxiety unless we really have to use them mm-hmm. and medication like benzotropine, but I don't imagine GP use that very often.
1: <laughs> okay. well, what about medications that can have extra side effects?
0: Um, so, you're thinking about metoclopramide, maxillin, yes, stematyl, yes, yes. Uh Stematil, um, because that can worsen uh, more Parkinsonism. Um,
1: okay.
0: So, really not that relevant for Huntington's disease. Good.
1: Because I, I do think that uh, sometimes we do use those medications. Yes. Yeah. Great. Dr. Chang, what are your final key messages to our GP listeners?
0: Uh, so, I think. Um, a early referral uh, to the Huntington disease unit is important um, for patients who um, have been symptoms of Huntington's disease with a positive family history that I mentioned about but for the other patients who have involuntary movements um, without family history could refer them to a movement disorder neurologist and that would be the way to triage it and always in Huntington disease patients screen for self-harm falls and choking that's my final message
1: thank you very much for the time Florence
0: Uh, thanks Dr David Ling for the uh, opportunity to talk to GPs and uh, look forward to working with you all
1: just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for tonight's webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that Health Ed has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points,